0: welcome to this episode of the Culture and Inequality podcast. Today we are discussing the shifting inequalities and shifting boundaries in the American art scene. Is it a good news story when the art world becomes more open? What are the implications of the inclusion of primitive arts in the Met? Does it lead to more equality in access and more equality of representation? And how did the elites maintain power in this process? Who are the heroes and who are the villains in this story? And why do we look at the arts when we are studying culture and power? In this episode, our colleagues across the pond, Jennifer, Lina and Philippa Chong, address these questions in an interesting conversation. Philippa Chong is an assistant professor at McMaster University in Canada, and she specializes in how we define and evaluate worth, including in her forthcoming book on the politics of book reviewing called Inside the Critic Circle. You will also hear Jennifer Lina. She's an associate professor at Columbia University whose research focuses on understanding processes of classification, particularly the organizational and institutional conditions for the creation, modification, and or elimination of cultural categories. Chong and Lina are mostly discussing Lina's recent book called Entitled: Discriminating Tastes and the Expansion of the Arts, but they are also discussing an article by Chong. Enjoy the conversation.
1: Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Philippa Chong, and today I have the great privilege of speaking with Dr. Jennifer Lina. She is an Associate Professor of Arts Administration at Columbia University in New York City, and also the author of Entitled, Discriminating Tastes and the Expansion of the Arts.
2: I'm very grateful to Philippa Chong for giving me the opportunity to talk to you about my work and for me to be in conversation with such an amazing scholar of classification and culture.
1: So just generally, just to get to know you a little bit more, uh, as a cultural sociologist, what are some of the questions or things that you find most interesting to study? So as a cultural sociologist, what kinds of things are you just interested in about the social world?
2: I think my work has always focused on the relationship of the production of culture, and race. And um, in terms of the production culture, I've always been interested in popular culture, but um, my interests have broadened as my career has gone on and I've become more and more drawn to the study of boundaries and classification and race within art. And the questions that always interest me are about uh, puzzling findings, um, things that are overlooked by others, things that are misunderstood, Um, I would have to say that my work on genre came from a frustration with the ways in which we had adopted musicological categories in use in sociology. And I felt like we hadn't critically examined whether or not they were good sociological tools. And then in my second book, I focused on the, and we'll be talking mostly about that today, the focus is on the relationship of these uh, categories that we now treat as, or some of us treat as natural and inevitable, the boundaries around forms of art. And I really wanted to understand and explore how those came to be seen as natural and inevitable. Um, In other work I've sort of, in work on rap music in particular, most of this is in articles, I was compelled to sort of answer some common sense questions that hadn't been tackled in sociology before. Like, I wanted to explore the question of whether or not um, rap became more violent and more misogynistic as the number of white listeners increased over time. Um, And so, you know, to some extent, I like subjecting or taking for granted understandings to sociological inquiry in a a very generic sense, but within my field of interest.
1: Why did you write
2: this book? Or what... What brought you to this project? So I actually started writing entitled in 2007, maybe. I was at Vanderbilt at the time and I was working with Pete Peterson. We actually hadn't started the work that we did on genre yet. We were instead, uh, I I was really serving as a a preliminary reviewer of his early work on omnivorousness Um, and Really I should say less so his first work on omnivorousness and more the kind of cleaning up work that happens as other people come in and adopt one of your theories and start using it and so um, in this period in the 2000s a lot of people were becoming inspired by the work he had done in the 90s and starting to replicate it so entitled actually came from a, an argument that I was having with Pete he was really insistent of the existence and nature of omnivorousness. And I had some foundational questions and it seemed to me like uh, the best way to argue with an expert is to use their own work as a starting point. And so you'll see some vestiges of this still in the published version of entitled, there's a section in the conclusion about omnivorousness. And in a way that passage is the genesis of the book. I essentially wanted to argue that the if there is a phenomenon in, contem- in the contemporary world where individuals' tastes are diversifying, particularly elite individuals, where they're liking more and more different kinds of culture. My argument was that in order to understand that, we had to return to production of culture first principles and look at the organizational and institutional processes that made that happen. If you look at Pete's early work, he he explains that a change as significant as the one that he documents must have its anchoring in changing practices and ideas and yet that had been left to the side as others had jumped in and utilized existing data sets and created new ones to try and just do the diagnostic task of figuring out if omnivorousness was present in different populations and if so what its characteristics were. So I started that work and then Pete and I developed our music project and I basically put entitled aside until Pete and I had written the article and then uh, Pete passed away and I wrote the book in the wake of that. And it was only then that I returned. And um, by then there was this incredible work that Sean Bauman and others have been doing on um, artistic legitimation. And that gave me a set of theoretical tools I really needed to be able to combine the work I was already doing with the advances I had made in my own thinking in the genre book about uh, communities and boundary setting. And um, it's just a happy accident those pieces came together in the right order to make the book happen as it did.
1: So students in this course are going to be assigned one chapter of your book which talks about the Museum of Primitive Art and really how primitive art became legitimated as an art form but of course in the book you also talk about really the establishment of American art and many other issues so for the benefit of our students who haven't been able to read the whole book yet I wonder if you can just give them a bit of an overview about the story you tell and what you think are some of the main points that they should take out of it. So this
2: is a great question about the larger argument and um i'm screen sharing so that you can see the single slide where i have tried in my book talks to explain the central purpose of the book i argue that at the heart of the project is a question about american elites how did they become sophisticated cosmopolitans while maintaining the myth of equal access to opportunity So I hope that you can see in this question that I'm tagging a bunch of different literatures that are in a bunch of different fields. There are people in a lot of different disciplines writing about what cosmopolitanism is and what it means, its significance, politically, socially, economically. Um, The sophistication word there is supposed to trigger you to think about arguments um, about cultural homology, about how your class and social position are meant to mirror your cultural tastes and the reverse. Um, And the myth of equal access to opportunity there is supposed to trigger your thinking about DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs that dominate in the arts and in other fields, including education. And so as a whole, the question here is about how elitism was maintained in 20th century America, even after it was, or how elites maintained their control in 20th century American art, even after elitism was looked, at, uh, looked down at, no longer seen as an admirable trait. And so the question I ask is, how did they accomplish that? How is it that we get, a much more diverse arts, and I have an illustration, I hope here that will show that um, we get a much more diverse arts. So that in the first, you know, hundred years of the United States building its its formal arts programs, its um, public arts, and naming them, and then creating organizations to house them and institutions to govern how they're run, for the first hundred years, we're focused on, you know. Imitating what we see in Europe, creating a domestic ballet production system, uh, creating American operas, and then defining what an American opera is, what its content is, what its form is. Um, and we similarly worked on museums and classical music. And then, you know, if you walk into any encyclopedic museum in the United States now, certainly the Met, which is the focus of the chapter that you've written. But if you were to go into, you know, a museum in Chicago or in Los Angeles, what you would see is a great variety of kinds of work being presented there. You'll see photographs, of course. You'll see what we refer to as primitive art objects. You might see um, examples of uh, video art. this happened not only in museum contexts, but in performing art contexts and public art contexts as well. And so in the book, I try and point to a couple of key moments in the organizational and institutional structures of American art, where this broadening was accelerated. Um, in the chapter that precedes the one that you read, I talk particularly about this uh, government program in the 1930s that responded to the depression and provided work for artists and for non-artists as well. This program was called the WPA in the Arts, the Works Progress Association, and um, it really involved a lot of local and folk art production under the auspices of a government jobs program. And because of the volume and variety of work that was created and government sponsorship of it, including local governments, a lot of that work found an audience, was displayed publicly, was included within museums, was celebrated by the arts critics. And so that is a moment of opening where people begin to not only see new and different kinds of things marked as art, but we also begin to develop an ability to speak about those things as art, a language that we can use, an artistic language that can be applied to these novel forms, things that previously were thought of as vernacular culture or forms of entertainment or forms of documentation, but not under the auspices of art.
1: The theme of this week's class is shifting boundaries and shifting inequalities. And I want to focus on the first part of that title, shifting boundaries first. Now, the chapter that's been assigned really is this fantastic kind of art biography or origin story of how primitive arts became legitimated in American society. And a key move in that happening was when primitive art was no longer being seen or valued for its ethnological or anthropological qualities. Instead, there had to be this key move and shift to it being viewed for its aesthetic or artistic qualities. Can you talk a little bit about what the distinction is between these types of ways of appreciating and how that happened?
2: So the question that Philippa asked me was not only about the scope of the book, after I get through the primitive art chapter, I talk, I have a chapter about the opportunity structures that make the acceleration and diversification of artistic legitimation possible. So we talk about funding and laws and that kind of thing. And then there's a chapter about cultural appreciation and appropriation where I walk through a couple of examples where work that wasn't previously considered art finds its way into an artistic context and there's a controversy about that moment. So for example, one of those case studies is about an exhibit of a kimono in the Boston Museum of Art as part of their East Asian exhibit and uh, visitors were encouraged to wear the kimono and there was a controversy about whether that was um, a form of dressing an ethnic costume a form of cultural appropriation that was um, worthy of censure and each of the case studies are are supposed to provoke a bunch of questions in readers about where the locus of power is and so one of the broader points of the book is that we can look at the, the rising number of female creators and non-white creators who are housed in these cathedrals of culture as a sign of progress. And it is. But we should equally be attentive to the expression of power that made those examples or exemplars possible and continue to block access for so many others. And so that politics of equality of access and equality of representation is one of the core features of the book, one of the core issues that I encourage readers to think about.
1: I think part of what's fascinating about this chapter for me as someone who studied artistic legitimation is really the level of detail and all of the work that you see goes into creating um, something as artistically legitimate. And what's really interesting about the case presented here is the spatial element, the really obviously spatial manifestation of artistic legitimacy that happens from really these primitive art forms being picked up as kind of like touristy knickknacks on people's honeymoons <laughs> as you write about, and then it gets moved into the Museum of Primitive Art, and then into the Met, which is where it really reaches its maturation as an art form. For those of us who are not from the United States, or in, for instance, I'm in Canada, we've got people all over Europe, can you talk to us a little bit more about what the Met is and its significance in art and in particularly in art in America.
2: So, so this one's really easy because the chances that non-Americans have been to the Met is very high. It is one of the world's most visited museums. Um, about 9,000, I'm sorry, 9 million people in any of the most recent years, of course, COVID accepted, have visited the Met. It is an encyclopedic museum which is to say that its mission is dedicated to presenting the art of the world. So like many major museums, it is a large physical structure and, uh, that physical structure is divided into collections. Those collections roughly correspond to areas of the globe, uh, sometimes as specific as countries, sometimes, uh, things that span nation states and sometimes, uh, much uh, broader categories like entire continents and then um, with respect to the European art that's included there can be entire collections dedicated to specific movements like Impressionism. So in that sense it should look familiar if you've been to an encyclopedic museum in any country it should look very familiar to you in that sense. Also, probably similar to your local encyclopedic museum, the Met is located in a very large and imposing building, white marble exterior with a large set of stairs, very um, physically imposing building. It gives the sense that you are walking into a, a government building, a ministry. Um, it certainly can't be confused with a, with a private home. And in terms of its significance in the American arts, I mean, it is... Uh, you know, there are reasonable disagreements about these things, but these are uh, battles that people fight in service of their own connection to them rather than objective fights. That There are fights over whether it's the most important museum in America, and there are obviously people who would disagree with this claim, but I think that is fairly safe to say it is the most influential single museum in the United States in terms of establishing the character and nature of American art and how American art is connected to global art. So it is very big, very important. The other thing to say for sociologists is that it's a place where, in part because of its size, in part because of its uh, very good and sound administration over the last centuries, its ample support from the city of New York, from the state of New York, and from the federal government, in addition to private donors and foundations, it has been able to engage in really innovative uh, administrative practices so the rationalization of arts administration the transition from the days of art men who got their jobs because they were from running museums because they were from very well educated and socially important families that transition from from that mode of administration kind of charismatic into a rational mode of administration with people who have been trained to run large organizations, that's initiated in part at the Met in the 1960s and uh, it, and traces of it far before then. Um, I point you especially to the work that Vera Zolberg has done on this and that Richard Peterson did on this. Um, But this is another way in which the Met is important, is that it innovates new administrative procedures. And because of its location within this network of nonprofit organizations and global museums, in fact, um, it has a tendency to kind of determine those procedures for others. The, The process of mimetic isomorphism means that administrative innovations that happen at the Met have a tendency soon to be found in other museums in the U.S. and around the globe.
1: Let's focus now to the second part of today's theme, which is not shifting boundaries, but shifting inequalities. The Museum of Primitive Art made its way to create an entire wing at the Met. And now primitive art is seen as a legitimate art
2: form. So isn't this a good news story? Um, Should you read it as a good news story? I mean, I think you should stop bending to the temptation to divide things into good and bad because rarely in my human experience, let alone my sociological experience, are things so neat. Um, But that's more me teasing you than a real answer. My real answer is, um, yeah, it's a complex field. Uh, Cultural appropriation has benefits as much as it has deficits and what i'm trying to do is get people to think clearly about what those are about the um, benefits that come to us when we have access to culture made around the world the educational benefits the benefits in terms of civil society and encouraging us to see ourselves within others to develop capacity for empathy across cultures surely having artifacts and explanation and education in those cultures is facilitates those good social benefits but it's equally the case that there are costs associated with it. And those costs lie heavily on the least powerful actors in the system. I I try to speak to this point in the chapter that you've read today. And so for those of you who have the text with you, I'm looking at page 42. And I just wanted to to call your attention to a passage where I try to answer some of this question. It's toward the bottom of the page. Um, And I'm talking about the lead into this is that you know, is to make the point that Philippa just made, which is, yes, uh, this is an illustration of the artistic legitimation process brought to conclusion. Um, but it wasn't without strife. It wasn't without opposition, the progressive administrators and Rockefeller is awkwardly within those because I think progressive here has to be a very generous term. Um, but he faced opposition. So I write in this chapter that we witness such resistance to the Rockefeller collection, which makes it a good case study for a more thorough investigation of the processes of artistic legitimation in the second half of the 20th century. By the way, I make the point that the artistic legitimation process in the first half of the 20th century has some markedly different features. So to continue, moreover, the reputational entrepreneurship of Rockefeller illuminates a complexity we will observe in most struggles toward the expansion of the arts. On the one hand, Rockefeller's ability to appreciate non-Western art made it possible for others in the art world to view these works as more than anthropological artifacts or curiosities, to see them as art. On the other hand, these objects were removed from their sites of production and early circulation and left in the care of American curators and tastemakers to make of them what they will. In Rockefeller's case, he leveraged them to produce capital he used in a struggle with other collectors and museum administrators. I'm self-consciously invoking Borgio's language there. What he did not do is redistribute those resources toward living artists or register much hesitation about moving those objects to New York. Nor did he have to acknowledge the labor done by earlier advocates of those arts in black internationalist movements. Thus, this case study widens our view of the cultural and economic politics of artistic legitimation. And finally, it provides an opportunity to explore how culturally voracious elites used their cosmopolitan orientations to engage in processes of artistic legitimation. So, the people who, you know, there are select creators who are still living and seek some and receive some benefit from being incorporated into the arts, but the lion's share of creators do not. And our understanding of their cultures is partial and limited because of the selection decisions of those Western curators and collectors who decide what is garbage and what is potentially art. And so the very explanation of what counts as art in other cultures can be done fait accompli by white or simply Western uh, curators, adopters, and so forth. So This imbalance is really important to pay attention to if you are in the position of wanting to defend encyclopedic museums as a site for developing empathy, understanding and an internationalist perspective. So uh, yeah, I think um, it is more than a good news story but it is partially that.
1: In your research, is Rockefeller a hero or a villain in this story?
2: Neither. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, I don't think that there are really many heroes or villains in, in culture. I mean, setting aside of course the, the um, R. Kelly's of the world who are clearly villains. Um, I think that, uh, you know, as sociologists, we, um, we tend to see these arguments about heroes, heroes or villains as data of something as opposed to information. In other words, like you know, if I were to go back in time and talk to uh, art collectors in the '70s about the um, effect that Rockefeller had had on expanding access to this work, I think you know almost universally he'd be celebrated, and that's certainly borne out by the um, New York Times coverage of the opening of the Museum of Primitive Art. In fact, there's a, a kind of striking claim that i found in um the press at that time here is uh so i'll share it with you so that you can enjoy my pleasure at this so here we have hilton kramer one of the most highly esteemed art critics who wrote for the New York Times. And he is covering the opening of the primitive art wing at the Met in 1982. And you're seeing a screenshot here of that news article. Sorry for the contrast, but this is news media from the from the 80s. And here's a quotation. The disposition to regard primitive modes of culture and experience as equal in value to our own, and in some respects, even superior and more vital, has ceased to be a possession of a minority of cultural visionaries and achieved a new status as part of the mainstream of cultural life. In fact, we are entering a new phase, not only in the history of taste, but in the history of moral imagination." Now, I hope that I don't have to explain how incredibly racist that (laughs) that is. You know, this notion that um, the the Met show is a demonstration of equality is a distortion of fact that is so serious, it should be described as a lie. And then to suggest that viewers of that exhibit were thinking of this art as equal to our own is also a, a very serious distortion of the facts on the ground. But what this tells us is that there was a belief among art elites that this moment was a moment of transition where we were seeing both equality of access and equality of representation. And it was so striking and exciting to somebody like Hilton Kramer that they could write about it as a new phase in the history of moral imagination. There was a real sense here that we had become, if you like, anti-racist, that we had, matured in our moral selves enough that we could see value in the work of African artists in this particular case. And this is just both not borne out by fact and um, alarmingly false. And yet it points us to a piece of information about how those art elites were starting to see themselves. They were starting to see themselves as cosmopolitan and anti-racist and they were manufacturing evidence to support that claim. And that had everything to do with the selective appropriation of particular forms of culture into the art establishment. It was not, as one might have hoped, or as one might engage in now, a full-scale interrogation of whether it was valuable to draw a distinction between art and other forms of culture, whether art itself was, if you like, a colonial enterprise.
1: You know, many of the themes, sort of the general social processes that you talk about, like legitimation, like classification, like boundary work, like reputational entrepreneurship. I mean, a lot of these ideas can be. Uh, studied and observed in lots of different social arenas of life. So I just wondered if you could speak a little bit to why you have been drawn to studying some of these processes in the world of art and also if you think there's any kind of analytical leverage we get by studying these processes through the study of art and culture.
2: Great, so I mean, I studied the world of art and culture because that's my training and my personal interests. But I'm, I'm also capable of you know, thinking analytically and strategically as a sociologist. And so even had I considered other options, I still would make an argument that um, looking at these processes of classification within art worlds is um, really beneficial. And, and maybe I would argue that it's more tractable kind of problem than looking at it in other fields. And there are a couple of reasons why I think that. One is that it's highly structured and regulated. And so the perturbations in the environment, the challenges that are made to authority, the introduction of new modes of thinking, the invention of new categories, they're exceptionally well-documented and um, vibrantly debated amongst a small enough group that you can actually kind of capture that whole process. So I think this, in terms of data and uh, research design, make it an excellent place. A second reason I think it's important is because it is um, often treated as if the, the art world is often treated as if it is beyond, um, beyond reasoning, beyond questioning, that it is um, a kind of stable and unchanging feature of our environment. And one of the things that I really want people to get from this book is a sense of how dynamic culture is, how dynamic art is, how much definitions of what count as art have changed and how quickly those changes have taken place. I think sometimes we're so embedded in the present moment that we forget to kind of step back. I think about this with women voting in the United States all the time. It's really only you know, two generations, maybe three in your family, since the women in your family couldn't vote in the United States, We there's a recency effect where ev- everything recent seems like it's the entirety of our history. It, it impacts our critical views of art as well. So one of the things I think um, emerges from taking that perspective to art is a, a quick recognition that there has always been a dynamic at play, a, um, a, a mutually beneficial or uh, at least interrelated um, dynamic between non-art and art, between vernacular culture, folk culture, entertainment, and whatever is described as art at that time. We we have a false impression, I think, that there's a very strict boundary between them. And what I hope the book shows is that there's constantly exchanges between these things. And they're just moments where more goes across the transom and moments where things are more blocked. So I think um, the arts gives us a really great moment to explore um, questions about the dynamism of categories and about taken-for-granted categories and, um, and about the expression of power in a highly regulated system and the ways in which um, power uses bureaucracy to service its own ends. I think it's also a place in which the um, the, the the community represents itself to itself. And it's always seemed to me like we underestimate the extent to which art objects are representations of social life. So I mean this in the sense of like representational painting obviously shows you what a culture looked like to itself. Um, And dance, uh, you know, dance and opera performances that are meant to represent a a moment in community or a religious phenomenon or a mythological story these are obviously representations of society to itself but i think on a much more subtle level in a in a kind of network relational way of thinking about it we can see in any artwork the influence of society, what materials were available for presentation, uh, for use rather, what um, styles of presenting a community to oneself were seen as legitimate and valid at the time in which we're not. And so art offers this wonderfully kind of meta sociological moment um, data opportunity. Uh, does my work give us leverage on contexts that are very different? I mean, of course, I would say that there's immediate applicability to other highly regulated environments. In fact, some of my work has been looking at occupations, particularly occupations that have some form of closure, a license or a voluntary certification that's meant to hold the boundary. These tasks, these titles, this uh, description of an occupation are, are, the property of those who legitimately belong within it. Well, I'm interested in when those things break down, how is it that um, occupational boundaries, even in the presence of a license or an occupation, you have to go to school for many, many years for, how is it that those boundaries get broken down? So I think that there's immediately uh, applicable concepts um, and ways of thinking for the study of very different, but still highly regulated bureaucratic systems. But I think also there's some stuff here for those of you who are interested in informal social relations. I mean, one of the things I I think about um, in the chapter that you've read that might be most useful is this this discussion of, of how the community decides on the best representation of itself, which artistic objects are being presented to the board as the most exemplary forms, which are being selected to represent an entire style or nation or continent. This um, is very similar to a process that I explored in my book on music where small groups of people in the avant-garde phase of of the genre are, um, you know, trying to figure out who belongs and who doesn't and what kind of clothes they're going to wear and how to describe what kind of music they're making. And this process of trying to generate consensus and therefore generate a boundary around the group. Well, this happens in so many informal Uh, communities from music genres, like I described, to families, to, um, you know, student groups, to uh, community organizations or community collections. You know, maybe some of the, if you're like me under COVID, you might be engaged in some kind of mutual exchange network in your community or amongst your friends. Um, If you belong to a buy nothing group, you know, there might be ways in which the method of looking at boundaries that I use in the arts could be useful to your study of how those groups come to form boundaries and operate um, under the understanding that there are people who belong and people who don't. So I hope that there's useful stuff in there for you. Um, And even if it isn't directly applicable to your work, I hope that you're inspired to be, um, more critical of knee-jerk claims that a product, a behavior, a moment is a form of cultural appropriation. And I equally hope that you'll be critical of the efforts of art insiders to say that they have produced some form of equality of representation and access if we are still in the situation we are now where essentially that's a product, any evidence of that is a product of tokenism uh, rather than a real sustained engagement with um, uh, other communities and cultures.